Hello everyone and welcome to episode 334 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre where you'll find a wonderful writing community and some fantastic courses. And I'm here with my co-host Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher series. How are you, Al? I'm I'm okay, Val. It's uh, you know the the weather's starting to get a bit cool here in oh, Australia, so yeah. I've had to you know pull out my various you know winter woolies. I've got the fingerless gloves are out and the mm. dressing gown over all of my clothes are out and all of those things that I do. Old houses and a bit of a chill. You know how it is. Oh yes, I gave your tip to of fingerless gloves to my friend Katrina. She's a travel writer, and um, she thought inspired. She went off and bought a pair. Oh, I'm I, I'm handing them out to everyone. I'm like, if you don't have a pair of these and you're trying to type in a cold house, then you are insane. That's all I Where can say. Where are you buying them from? I just get them from wherever I can. It's, it's a funny thing because they pop up randomly in mm. places like, you know, Best and Less every once yeah. in a while. Yeah. Um, but I have this fantastic pair that I bought online um, and I don't remember where, so please don't ask me. But they have uh, like, I'm pretty sure it's like Jane Eyre or something printed on them. Um, <laughs> and they're actually quite, they're called writing gloves. But they're oh, quite okay. an yeah, they're like a mitten with the with the fingers cut off. So you're, you're like, they just sort of go on like a sleeve um, and they're actually really oh, quite good. that's a good they're, idea. Yeah, and they're like a lightweight. They're, they're not wool. They're actually, so there's no sort of, you know, squidging between the fingers. Um, they're not wool. They're like a uh, like a heavy cotton. And they're actually, I was worried that they wouldn't be warm enough, but they're actually really good. So I do recommend them. And if I can find the link to where I bought them, I will put it in the show notes for you so that you mm. can all go and buy some. Do you have those things? I used to have them when I was living in Victoria where, um, and I think golfers have them on those really cold mornings. They're like these, um, oh, it's like a liquid in a plastic thing and then you kind of snap the hand it. hand warmers. It, yeah. You can buy them at the post office. You know, it's funny, I don't have them. I stand in line down there at the post office because I spend quite a bit of my life there these days. Yeah. <laughs> um, down at the post office and I look at them regularly and I just think, who uses those things? And now you've told me. <laughs> <laughs> you told me. There Don't you, you just go. put your hands in your pockets? Like, really? But whatever. <laughs> Not, no, well, in Victoria, it's really cold. It's a lot colder. Like, you don't need them in Sydney. But mm. um, don't you think the post office sells the most random things in the world? Well, that's what I love about it because, you know, as and with the kind of social distancing, the spacing these days is, is quite weird. Um, but it, you do get a fair bit of time to just stand there and think to yourself, now, do I really need that, you know, very clever grater I, with the... I always do. I always need it. <clears throat> I even do go back. Really? Yeah, I've like, what did I buy the other day? An egg, something that cooks eggs from the post no, office? Yeah, yeah, not. yeah. I did. It's and there are always those lightweight things that you can just post really easily in case you're looking for a last-minute gift for a friend. Oh, of course. Well, no, I buy them for myself. So it's like like infomercial heaven. I'm an infomercial sucker. Um, so anyway, it's this thing. It's really cute and you put your eggs in it and then you like nuke them and stuff and end up with scrambled mm -hmm. eggs. It's right. Really <laughs> I'm just – it's <laughs> – you'll be able to use them for when you make your scones next time. <laughs> Okay, um, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing. We have a great post 
this week. It's actually from the Australian Writers' Centre blog called Eight Ways to Find Your Golden Ticket for Freelance Writing. And um, it's actually a, a, a really useful post because it collates um, our top eight posts that are really useful for people who are interested in freelance writing. And one of them points to one of our most popular posts, actually, of all time. It's unbelievable how many hits this one gets and it's called um, have you considered these freelance writing revenue streams and it's actually based on a talk that you and I did well I don't, I don't oh, even remember right. where we did that talk. no no we did I do it was like a it was a Walkley's thing remember it was uh, oh, yeah. the, the conference and it was Paddington. in it was in Paddington remember yes, that we had to go yes. to Paddington I remember that yeah it was great and we had a a, it was one Mm. of the first things that we ever did together it was and I was super nervous and you were just like just talk about stuff you know Al and I was like right you were a hit I was well you know Clearly, the post that we put together based on what we talked about was a hit, so that's excellent. (laughs) Well, in fact, let's um, have a look at it because one of the revenue streams, obviously, is what you expect, writing articles for online publications or magazines or newspapers or whatever, right? Um, Just traditional um, feature writing. But also there are custom publications. So, for example, what came in the mail for me yesterday, uh, my HCF, because I'm with HCF, the the health insurer, and mm. um, what came in the mail, but um, the HCF magazine. But that is full of regular feature articles by freelancers. You know, when I was at, um, I think it was Gloria Jeans or Jamaica Blue, one of those caf- cafe places and they have their own magazine as well fitness first has their own magazine so custom publications are an option as well and people often don't think about them they just think about what you get at the newsstand but there's a whole world of um uh, opportunity that's not on the newsstand um, yep. apart from apart from custom publications and you've probably written for some of these there's like in trade or industry specific ones you know I used to write for Medical Observer which used to go to all GPs in Australia um and one of my first jobs when I was a, a cadet journalist back in the yeah. day so at this stage I was employed but these a lot of this sort of stuff has actually been outsourced over the years because these kinds of publications have gone to um, to smaller publishing houses like mm. they've gone out of the larger ones was writing um, building advertorials for mm. a building specific, uh, trade publication that went out, you know, throughout the entire building industry. Mm. So this is when I was about nineteen or something, and I was ringing up, talking to people about their, talking to, to various suppliers and things about their roofing and their, you know, their <laughs> their uh, their screws and their various, you know, the the bits and pieces supplied to the building industry. So you know, it's it's a, it's an interesting way to develop your. Um, knowledge and expertise of a whole range of really interesting niche uh, subjects as well. Yeah, definitely. A friend of mine used to write for Mercedes magazine um, and interview, you know, people like Donna Hay or, you know, just mm. high-profile people because mm. that was of interest to that, that readership. But, yeah, there's there's those custom publications as well. But another one, and you've also done this, is 
um, corporate work, I used to do a lot of this as well, and I still yeah. do um, a fair bit of it because you know, corporations, they need writers. They need things written like internal communications, newsletters, um, just communication to their own staff, case studies of their customers. Mm. Um, that also comes under content work. Um, press releases if you're that way inclined. But you don't have to write press releases. You can just write for their website. Newsletters. So definitely corporate work. Yeah, newsletters. Um, once I was asked to come in to sit at a, you know, half day or maybe not half day, two hour um, strategy meeting and basically get the contents of that strategy meeting and turn it into a brochure. Yeah. And so, you know, it was a very efficient way to, um, <clears throat> to earn money because <clears throat> yeah. it all came from that two hour meeting. Um there's also um, books. We, you know, there are people. You've done this too. Where uh, there's ghost writing, um, also writing nonfiction books, um, writing your own books potentially. Uh, but that's certainly an option for a revenue stream as well. But one I really like, and it's something that you wouldn't necessarily do straight off the bat if you're new to writing, although you could if you already had a qualification in a particular area. But sometimes when you start writing, you veer towards a particular interest like, oh, I only, I really like writing about health or I really like writing mm. about you know, punk parenting, music or parenting, mm. whatever. So sometimes you veer into a particular direction. And like I said, you can't necessarily do this in your first year, but after you've accumulated years and years of experience in that area, you effectively become an expert in that area or mm. you have the ability to be a commentator in that area in the same way as um, Caroline Cummings. She's written about commercial property forever. So, mm. Her opinion now, even though she is not in the commercial property industry as a player, she has observed it for for decades to the point mm. where she probably knows more about the commercial property sector than someone with five years' experience in the commercial property sector. So mm. once you do it for a while, you become an, you become sought out potentially as an expert in the area and then people can hire you for your expertise for um, trend forecasting or for just writing about that particular niche. So that's something that um, not many people think about when they go into writing unless they've already got a qualification in that area and they only want to write about, write about that. But it's something that um, can, can happen as well. Um, and you also do social media writing. Yeah, and that's that's obviously like even since we we did this because this is um, we we uh, did that presentation a few mm. years ago. But this area of um, freelance writing has actually become bigger and bigger and bigger and continues to grow. And that's uh, writing um, you know social media specific content. So you know you're writing. Twitter and Facebook, um, you know, posts and managing. So it's 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 creating the posts and and you know taking say a blog post that that has appeared on a client's website and turning it into um, different you know uh, different tweets, different Facebook messages, different uh, Instagram across different things, um, creating different sort of styles of content for mm. that person. But you also you almost um, you be almost become the voice of that particular client you know, on the internet. So there's a lot of very close liaison with the client involved in this because particularly if you're, I mean, I know someone who does this, uh, does this work for another author, actually manages that author's um, social media presence. So creating, mm. so not everything that it's, it's, it's like, so the, the author does 
their own bits and pieces in the sense that, you know, things that happen daily or whatever. Yes. I'm talking about scheduling posts and create and looking through that that author's backlog of content because it, this is an author that does have, you know, a sizable backlog of, of, of blog content, mm. repurposing older posts for new, you know, and, and sort of airing the archives on a regular basis um, and creating posts around those things that, that sound like that author so that it's a, a vocal thing. So it, it's quite a specialised sort of, you know, specialist area and it's something that you really need to have a good handle on how um, how to do that, how to repurpose that content, how to, to, to take on someone else's, you know, persona without yes. going too far, you know, all of those sorts of things. So it does come with a bit of experience. Um, but it's also, it's a, it's a really interesting, interesting way of writing. It's an yeah. interesting way of using that skill in a new way. Um, you know, even LinkedIn, like there's, you know, like managing yes. someone else's LinkedIn and, um, that sort of stuff. And there are, you know, CEOs who do have someone else, to write their, you know, content for that sort of stuff. Yes. In fact, I'm seeing a lot more of that. It's not, not, not just for shorter things like social media and LinkedIn, like you've just mentioned. But for example, what I'm seeing more of is um, <clears throat> people who are I'm um, an expert in a particular area, so they're business owners and or whatever, and they are, say, looking to write an ebook, but they don't want to write it. Yeah. So they're asking me, "Hey, do you ha- have anyone who might be who you know is interested in health?" Say that. That's in, in fact that was one. So this guy that I knew, he was saying, I- "I'm doing this particular business in I can't remember exactly what the business was. Um, do you have a writer interested in health that can write an ebook for me?" And I actually put him in touch with one of our graduates, and she wrote the ebook for him. So y- your name doesn't necessarily get out there, but you get paid fairly decently for yeah. all of that effort. Yeah. Anyway, and that, so. I, I think the I think the key message that came from that conversation that that, yeah. that uh, lecture presentation that we gave, as well as this particular conversation, is that um, if you want to make a living as a freelance writer, you need several revenue streams. Revenue, like this yeah. is generally speaking, you are not going to get. Um, an, a living wage, whatever your version of a living wage may be, and it's different for everybody. Yeah. Um, you may, you're not going to get that from one one content stream or one revenue stream. You need to think about how you can take that basic skill that you have and repurpose it into a whole range of different areas. And you have to think about how you're going to make the, you know, to create the networks that are going to take you into the kinds of areas of writing that you particularly want to do. Yes, and it that might sound daunting, but don't it don't let it be daunting because, for example, my friend, the one who now has the fingerless gloves, <laughs> um, she's see, she I'm actually, changing lives. <laughs> yeah, she actually does get uh, the vast majority from from travel writing. So she's yep. a, she's a travel writer, but for example, the additional revenue stream for her is that because she so it can be related to travel, right, or related to your area of interest, because she is interested in travel writing, she gets commissioned or she gets some um, contracted by um, tourism bodies to right. then collate or edit um, or coordinate. Uh, other travel articles from other people. So she might get paid a day rate for that level of essentially editing, project managing, um, but it's not that far out of her wheelhouse, so to speak. It's still to do with travel. She met those people from the tourism bodies through her travel writing, but it's she's not actually flying somewhere and writing about travel, you know what I mean? No. Right. So, yeah, just, just think laterally about your other opportunities. You don't have to go to a brand new some the revenue stream that's unrelated to what you are doing now. To what you're already doing, yeah. Yeah. 
All right, let's move on to our competition this week. No, no, wait, before we go, yeah. thinking yeah, laterally. Oh, okay. I forgot yes. to tell you okay. something. I've got news, thinking laterally. Ooh. Okay. Um, so I am doing, I'm, 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 I'm branching out, Val. Oh, Having had such a successful time in our block party a little yes, while ago where yes. we chatted away and, and you were awesome at, at, you know, driving as you usually are and yeah. I just sort of float along as a passenger and make, <laughs> make the colourful comments on the side, I'm branching out. I am having my very own live stream event <gasps> in well, it's not my very own. It's actually the Your Kids Next Read live stream event, the very first one um, with my my uh, co-host team, um, Alison Rushby and Megan Daly. We awesome. are presenting in the Your Kids Next Read our very first author talk, which is going oh, wow. to be... I know it's pretty exciting. We're, we're, yeah. It's our, it's an experiment, so you know, like it's going to be pretty interesting. Sure. Um, it's uh, I'm going to be interviewing Amy Kaufman uh, about oh, her brand awesome. new book, uh, at, which is the third book in the Elemental series. And people, um, regular listeners of the podcast, might remember I spoke to her last year, and it was one of the best interviews that we have had in a long time. Yeah. She was so generous. We talked about particularly. I remember people were particularly captivated by her pitching. She talked a lot about pitching and how she pitches and what she does and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Anyway, we are going to be having a chat live uh, on June the 10th in the Your Kids Next Read group between 7 and 8 p.m. We are going to be talking – I mean, obviously that group is about readers. So we are going, I'm going to be talking to her about her new book. We're going to, we've got some giveaways to, go, to be going on with. I'm going to talk to her about, you know, um, just general – you know, middle. She writes. This is a middle grade series. She also writes YA very, very successfully. Um, so we're going to be talking about the differences between middle grade and 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 YA. Well, I'm going to be looking at the kinds of things she reads. We're going to be having a lovely chat, hopefully. Um, so if anybody is interested in watching me attempt to drive the ship for the first time, uh, which is going to be fascinating because, you know, I've got to say, people, Val is a very steady hand on the tiller for me. Like I do have a tendency to go off on random tangents and she brings me back and it's a good thing for all of us. So it could go horribly, horribly wrong. Um, And there's technology involved as well, which, as we know, I can be a bumbling fool with. So that should be fun too. Um, But if you'd like to come along and witness this firsthand, it's in the Your Kids Next Read Facebook group, um, 7 p.m., on June the 10th, um, Australian Eastern Standard Time, and uh, we've got uh, three lots of her uh, trilogy, the whole three books to give away. Uh, so, you know, it's it, it could be a car crash. Come and watch. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. Amy is great. So that's going to be a cracker, definitely. We'll put the link in the show notes. You'll put the link in the show notes, won't you, Al? As soon as I remember where the link is, I will put it in the show notes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So our competition this week, we have three copies of Seven Lies by Elizabeth Kay, the most mesmerizing and unsettling thriller you'll read this year. If lies are dangerous, the truth can be catastrophic. Jane and Marnie have been inseparable since they were 11 years old. In their early 20s, they both fell in love and married handsome young men. But Jane never liked Marnie's husband. He was always so loud and obnoxious, so much larger than life, which is rather ironic now, of course, because if Jane had been honest, if she hadn't lied, then perhaps her best friend's husband might still be alive. Mm. This is Jane's opportunity to tell the truth. The question is, do you believe her? (laughs) Okay. So if you want to win a copy, go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 15th of June. Uh, that's writercenter.com.au slash win. 
Right. Now, Al. Mm. Are you ready for the word of the week? I am. Okay. Welts merch. Welts merch. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Oh, no, Welts okay. merch. Do you want to try again? Welts merch. Well, okay. obviously it's German, but obviously it's one of those well, great it's, German. It's, it's probably one of those great German words that is perfectly succinctly one thing, but I have no idea what it is. <laughs> and uh, it, to be fair, even though it's from the German, I only ever pick words that are in the Macquarie Dictionary. So mm. I'm not just throwing in some la- random German word to to fool Al. Mm. Weltsmirch. Okay, so it sounds like a disease involving welts, but mm. it's not. Of course According, not. That would be too no. simple. <laughs> According to the Macquarie Dictionary, I'll just spell it actually in case people are wondering because I'm sure some people are. W e l t Welt Schmerz S C H M E R Z Welt Schmerz. Okay, so according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means sorrow felt and accepted as the necessary portion of the world, and it comes from the German Welt world or maybe it's welt and schmerz pain so you might say we're experiencing a form of welt smirch during this period of global isolation so world pain so pain that is mm. as experienced sorrow or pain as experienced on a global scale is that yeah what essentially yeah. yes yeah. yes okay yeah um, all right yeah and i, thought I it was liked a breed it. of dog but that's okay <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me like the Welsh well, I know, thought like a it dog. was related to that thing that comes every month um, because when I was a teenager and, you know, those things were happening, um, I learnt the word Mittelschmerz. Do you know what that is? No. So Mittelschmerz is actually a thing and because um, – well, Schmerz is pain and Mittel is middle. And it's sometimes you experience pain in the middle of the month. Oh. So that's Are you talking about menstrual pain, Valerie? Yes, menstrual okay. pain. Okay, let's, let's be quite clear because you're a little bit all over the place Oh, there. sorry. I didn't mean right. like your newsletter, which comes every month or anything. <laughs> which is, gives me pain. I don't know. <laughs> sorry, I should have been more explicit. Wow, this is, yeah, go. this has gone down roads we weren't expecting. Okay, okay. let's move on to our... <laughs> Who is our writer in residence this week, Al? (laughs) Who is our writer? Oh, it's Catherine Kovacic and she's brilliant. We had a great old chat. So the reason that – so she writes crime fiction and her her sleuth, her detective, is an art dealer. So I was sent the third book in the series to read um, and I so enjoyed – the art aspect of it and she also has this crazy dog character that that you know as I said to her when we had our conversation like I just knew when I read this book that she was um very much a dog lover because this dog is such a you know such a vivid character in the story Mm. um so having read that third book I not only wanted to read the first one that she that she's written uh but I wanted to talk to her about it so this is me just indulging my interest right here. (laughs) Fantastic. So let's have a listen to Catherine. 
Catherine Kovacic is the Australian author of three novels featuring art historian and sleuth Alex Clayton. The latest book in the series, The Shifting Landscape, is out now with Alan and Anwen. Welcome to the program, Catherine. Thank you very much, Alison. Lovely to be chatting to you. Now, I read in your bio that you are both a qualified vet and an art historian. What made you sit down to write your first novel, which was The Portrait of Molly Dean? Well, um, I'd, I'd finished up on a project and I had that window in my schedule where I you know, where I'd been doing that. And I didn't want it to be sucked back into regular work and family as our little blocks of time tend to be. And I'd always wanted to, to get back towards writing. I'd had that science background. So I decided I was going to write and I had Molly Dean in my head because the portrait of Molly Dean was actually based on a true crime, um, an unsolved Melbourne murder from 1930. And I'd come across Molly as a person in my art research because she was associated with some artists at the time. And I'd never known what to do with her story, but I always thought it was very sad that she'd been forgotten. And particularly when I came across her mentioned in the timeline of the artist who was her lover, who was Colin Colohan. And um, for 1930, it said for Colin Colohan, Colin's lover, Molly Dean, brutally murdered his career briefly stalls. And oh. I thought that was, yeah, yeah, I thought that was pretty awful that this woman's life had been reduced to an inconvenient bump in his career. So um, so I'd, I'd sort of had her in the back of my head but never quite known what to do with her. And um, and then I, I came across um, a, an old Colin Colohan catalogue, which is just sort of basically a listing of his paintings, and it said that he'd done a portrait of Molly Dean and the portrait itself is missing. And that just gave me my little hook for developing my art sleuth art dealer, Alex Clayton, um, and, and getting her into looking into Molly Dean's murder, basically. So... Alex Clayton herself basically came out of the mystery. How did you then go about creating her as a character? Well, I had Alex in mind. She had to be an art dealer because um, the sleuthy qualities that she brings to it is that she's she's kind of she's not a, a pearls and black suit in in you know South Yarra or Wallara kind of art dealer. She's much more of a jeans and blundstones. Not that I want to say a grifter, but she's, you know, she's she's working hard for her money. So she's looking for the cheap stuff that, that isn't really cheap, that she can, you know, figure out what it is and sell for a profit. So she has quite good sleuthing qualities because she, she sees things that other people don't. She sees those little details and she can see beneath the surface grime to, you know, what might lie beneath. So... Um, and she also is, is good at taking chances on things like that. You know, she has to to make her living. So it's the, the kind of qualities that you want in a sleuth. So was this book the first kind of fiction that you'd ever written? Was this the first time you'd ever sat down to write, you know, a novel? Yeah, yeah, it was. I, you know, I'd done a little bit of academic writing, certainly, you know, for, for the PhD and what have you. And um, and as a vet, I'd done some, some more scientific-based writing. But, you know, there's a, a fairly limited audience for the dietary management of gastrointestinal disease in small animals. Seriously? You really yeah. shocked me. <laughs> <laughs> it was a well-received paper, but, you know, just a very small audience. <laughs> um, so why did you think I'm going to write a novel? Like what made you think I'm going to do that? I think at, the, at that time it was really almost just because I, I was thinking of Molly Dean the person and I thought, right, I just want to – I want to give her her own presence. And I almost, I sort of wanted to give her a resolution to her story, even if it was a fictitious one. But I think I just didn't want her to be forgotten. I didn't want her to be that inconvenient little speed bump 
in someone else's life story. So it was really just, just to create a story around her. For her. Mm. And how did it then come to be published? Like, you know, you wrote sort of, okay, let's go with the process of it first. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to write that draft, that first draft? The first draft probably took me about a year because there was a lot of there's a lot of research involved too with with that historic period and the facts of the crime itself, which aren't there's a lot of the files are missing. So there's a lot that that is missing from the story too. But um, just getting that research for the period right took a while. Okay, so you wrote the first draft and mm-hmm. um, and just sort of like obviously working out how to write a novel as you wrote. Um, what happened at that point? What did you do next? Like how did it then go from being a first draft to becoming a published novel? Okay, well, quite quite a bit of editing. And I think because Alex obviously is set in a more, more modern time, so Alex is around um, 1999, 2000. And again, that was sort of um, predicated by Molly's story because I wanted people to still be alive. So I had to to push Alex back to that period so I could still have a couple of people alive from Molly Dean's 1930 period. Right. Um, so it was a matter of, you know, and fusing those two stories together. So the first book has two timelines, but the others are just in Alex's period. So working those two timelines together. And also I think with Alex playing her story off against Molly's because both of them were, you know, sort of single independent women trying to to make their own way in the world. So working out how to just have little bits without, you know, sort of beating readers over the head with the fact that there was a kind of compare and contrast going on. Um, and I think that's that's a real art in itself that you, you can only develop through playing around with manuscripts is working out how to put things there without, you know, having, you know, bells and whistles and a neon sign with a big arrow that keeps pointing <laughs> downwards. You know, those kind of signs. <laughs> I do. I yeah. really do, yeah. So do you worked that out as you wrote or you worked it out as an editing, like once you had a first draft, as an editing process? It was, it was a bit of both, but I think it came together much more in the, in the editing process, particularly sort of fitting together the chapters and how to make the story flow nicely without, you know, jarring too much between one and the other. Okay. So once you'd done that and you had married everything together, did you look for an agent? Did you send it out to publishers? What did you do from that point? The first thing I actually did was I went to a speed pitching session. So yes. that was yes, run by Sisters in Crime that year. Um, so that's five was five publishers in the room, and I think it was three three or four minutes with each publisher, ring a bell, and then on to the next one. And how and was that process for you? Were you like super nervous? Was it like meeting a first date? It was yeah, I was hugely nervous. It was it. It just, I think the the bell ringing was almost the most, you know, you just sort of, you said, oh my goodness, the bell's rung. Um, and, um, and I think just because they, you know, they were great publishers in the room too. So you just feel that pressure of getting that elevator pitch out um, and sounding like, you know, for, especially for a first writer, feeling confident about putting your work forward in that sort of a setting. Um, and I think that's a huge thing too, that, that you know, where we're all kind of trying to figure this out together in a way as, as, as new writers as emerging writers and that was a I think a, probably a huge thing to, to do to go in first off um, and just just pitch like that. How did you hear about it? Had you joined Sisters of Crime as a you know as part of your process for writing the novel? Is that is that how you found out about the I mean was it the joining the society sure. finding out about it? Yeah, I'd actually been um, a member of Sisters in Crime for a few years, but yes, it was it was, and that that particular year they ran a, sort of like a two day crime writing festival, which was called She Kilda, 
and so the the pitch was pitch session was part of that. But certainly, I mean, you know, a Melbourne Writers Fest. Most of the writers festivals often have that little session running somewhere, uh, but they're very highly subscribed. So. That's, that's a bit of a tip there is you keep an eye, sign up to all these newsletters um, because when those opportunities come up, you need to need to be on board and get a ticket to, to do it straight up. All right. So can you remember, casting your mind back, mm-hmm. can you remember the elevator pitch that you used that day? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> no, I don't think I can. I think, I think probably I forgot it about two minutes after I walked out of the room. It was, it was in um, sheer terror. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So um, it was, you know, it was uh, an aspect of introducing the characters. So two timelines, Molly Dean, Alex Clayton, saying who they were and what they did, mentioning the fact that Molly was based on a true person, um, giving a sort of a, a comparison to where the book would sit in a bookshop shelf, you know, with sort of similar titles, so that yeah. to give the publishers an immediate idea of what they might be looking at. Um, and that was about it, I think. Okay, so did you, from that process of, of talking to those five publishers, did you get a publisher from that pitch um, Yes, session? I did. Oh. Yeah, I, I had interest from four of the five, so. Well, that must have been exciting. It was, it was yeah, it was really exciting, and I think just really surprising to sort of get those, get the emails sort of arriving, and I think it was interesting because some of them were like, yes, you know, give us, here's my card, you know, send us your stuff, and the others were just like, Oh well, I can get your details from the organisers if I'm interested, and you're just like, oh, well, that's that. But um, then I got follow-up emails from those guys too. So it's interesting that that they kind of, you know, some of them have real poker game faces going on in the room too. That they're they're not telling you that they're actually interested. Interesting. Mm. So you so you had interest from four. You sent the manuscript out to four, and you got an offer out of that. Is that is yeah, that how it worked? That's okay, right. Yeah. Terrific. All right. So when you just out of interest, um, you were saying you had a dual timeline in that first book, but um, mm-hmm. the others don't. Do you are you someone? Did you plot your book out before you began, or do you just sort of start writing and then work make it work? With Molly Dean, there was a, there was obviously already a line for her story because. Yeah. We know that she died in the end, and I didn't. I didn't want to make her story "Girl Gets Murdered" and so her story is the sort of the last few weeks of her life. So that was the timeline was just leading up towards her death. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the other books, I I guess oh gosh, how can I describe it? I do sort of plot it out, but I plot it out very loosely. So I'm not one of those people that kind of charts everything and knows exactly where things are going to happen, or indeed, if certain things are going to happen. I think probably the best way to describe it is I'm more like someone who has one of those really dodgy GPS things where you know you know the city you're going to arrive in and you plug it in thinking that you're going to go down the freeway the whole way but then at some point your GPS just goes at the next exit turn left and suddenly you turn left and you're in all these little narrow back streets and sometimes it's just really scary and you just want to get back on the freeway in a hurry but sometimes you find all these really cool little things down the side streets so I know where I'm going and I know a couple of the towns I'm going to visit along the way, but how I get between the towns is a little bit sketchy. Okay. So, all right. So with Molly Dean, you know, you started with that story. Just mm-hmm. as a, out of interest, as an art historian and you're writing a fictionalised version of a real person's life and you're creating a solution to what happened to that person, you know, in mm-hmm. quite a, you know, in a, in a, in a set world, an art you know, where mm-hmm. you have to be uh, correct about the facts of some of it. W- was there ever sort of like a, a point where you thought, 
oh, I wonder how this is going to be received. Like I'm coming up with a solution to what happened to a, an enduring age-old mystery. What are my, you know, professional colleagues, et cetera, going to think about this? Was there ever that point? Did you ever think, worry or wonder about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, well, Molly's story, it's, it's not really of interest to, to art historian people, I think, because she wasn't an artist herself. So, again, that kind of, you know, just drops her off the radar. But, yeah, I was very conscious of the fact that she was a real person and um, that, that people that I was talking about are in her circle were real people too. Yeah. So in that book actually has sort of an extensive um, notes section at the end that explains which bits are factual and who are the fictitious characters in that. Right. And I think there are certainly bits in that where, I perhaps would have liked to have taken the story in a different direction, but it would have pointed more specifically towards a you know a person who'd been alive at the time. I thought, well, ah. I, can't, I just can't, I can't kind of go there. Yeah. Um, so no, I was very aware that that this was a real person, and you know, I obviously respecting her memory and respecting the story itself. But um, as I said, the most of the files about Molly Dean were lost, which which kind of compounded the mystery because then, of course, there were people who had huge conspiracy theories that, oh, she'd been, you know, dating a prominent parliamentarian or something and he'd disappeared the files or he'd had her killed because she was going to expose him. And, you know, there's, there was all these other little, you know, stories going on that swirled around, like sort of right up through to the 1980s about, you know, who killed Molly Dean and why did the files disappear? But, you know, the files probably disappeared because someone messed up in yeah. the office you know that's as these things usually happen but um yeah interesting like it's a when you're when you're blending fact and fiction like that in a world in which you are actually working professionally like there is definitely a line that needs to be you know kept in mind the whole time absolutely yeah mm. so uh so reading the shifting landscape which of course is the latest book and is out um is out now mm-hmm. um book three so the the art is at the heart of that. Like I read that and I felt when I was reading the art stuff, um, you know, like I knew, it's like I often say to kids when I, when I do, you know, story writing workshops for mm-hmm. kids, I'm like, write what you know because what you know will ground the rest of your book. Now I, you know, definitely felt like I was in very safe hands and I found it fascinating. Like I found it really, really interesting. Um, do you um, start with the art? Did you start the shifting landscape with the painting? Yeah, well, I think particularly because that's Alex's world, so I think there always has to be that there has to be a reason for her to be there. So, um, and in this case, the Western District has such a strong artistic heritage from that colonial art period. So it was a great way to get her out of the city and to send her on that that errand with the art there. And of course, she kind of thinks about things in in artistic terms. So that means that you know she looks at a particular landscape. She go, oh yeah, that's a bit like I remember that street and painting, which kind of gives me a chance just to. It's it's her character, so it it's the way she thinks. And again, this is again not not hitting the reader over the head and giving them an art lesson as we go along because no, that's oh, how boring how boring would that be? <laughs> but um, but yes, yeah, so it it always has to start with with a painting or some sort of art element for for Alex just just to get us into that setting and the story. All right. So how did you come up with that particular painting and why that particular setting? What made you decide? Maybe maybe tell us a little bit about the story about the book and then explain, you know, why you chose to go down that particular road with that particular painting. Sure. Um, so in the shifting landscape, Alex is called to the Western District to the Macmillan family's historic uh, sheep property, a squattocratic property called Kinloch to value the family collection. And when she gets there, she finds this um, forgotten and very valuable painting. And she also finds that the family's um, 
well, undergoing quite a bit of tension, shall we say, as yes, yes. Uh, and then the patriarch of the family dies uh, in fairly mysterious circumstances and the painting goes missing. So Alex decides to get out of town because, you know, families, tension, death, missing things, you just don't want to be in the middle of that. But then uh, a child goes missing and Hogarth, her dog, her faithful sidekick, also disappears. So she's stuck there and um, and she's looking for her dog and they're looking for the child. And um, I guess the question is, is everybody going to be found and is Alex going to sort of unravel the secrets of the family before more people die or things get worse? Mm. We always want things to get worse, don't yeah. we? Yeah, things get bad <laughs> and then they get worse. That's what we like. <laughs> and and you, you said you wanted, you know, that you know this particular painting takes her out of the city. Did you mm-hmm. particularly want her to get out of the city or was there just something about the particular painting that you've um, used as the basis of this for that, that made you want to write this kind of story? I think it was about the painting because um, in in The Shifting Landscape, the painting is by colonial artist Eugene von Girard. And what he did, he spent a lot of time in the Western District and he painted these, I guess they're, they're called sort of house portraits. So they're paintings of the properties of these squatocratic families. Um, and essentially the idea, they're about power. You know, they're about this is the land we own and here's our house slap dab in the middle of it. Yeah. And so having that, that house in that, that landscape it sort of suggested to me that whole idea of the the manor house mystery. So Mm. except rather than being in rural England, we're in regional Victoria. So um, it it gives you that whole lovely setup with the cast of characters in a not not sort of shut away, but they are isolated from, Mm. you know, the nearest township and that sort of thing. And, And I think also the rich history of the Western District in terms of not just the squatocratic families, but in terms of the Indigenous history. Mm. Um, and that sort of appeared in Von Gerard's art in reality. And so that gave out, gives Alex a lot of scope to explore both, you know, on many levels, both what's going on with the family and what's going on at a deeper level in the whole district. Mm, okay. So, you know, obviously, as I said, you draw on your research skills, you know, to to ground Alex and to kind of, you know, to, to ground the story. How do you handle weaving that research into the story so that you are not smacking the reader over the head with an art lesson? Like, are there ever times where your editor says, we could probably do with a little bit less detail here? Well, a couple of times I've actually said, can you put in another painting? I'm like, really? But... <laughs> Another one. Um, I think. I think it's. Um. It's. It's probably about sort of doing the research and then thinking about lots of things and then peeling it back. So you know, someone once told me that if you if you're getting dressed to go out, you know, you're supposed to do a twirl in front of the mirror and the the, the thing that catches your eyes, the thing you take off, it says you, you've overdone it too much. So I think that's it. That sometimes they go in and then at the editing stage, I'm just like, oh, that just needs to come out. We're, you know, we've got too much art. But it's it's sort of because Alex thinks that way, so I try and keep it um, almost more as a, if, if it's not a painting that she's actually dealing with or, you know, looking to sell or restore or it's right in front of her. If it's just a sort of fleeting thought, then it needs to be in the manuscript as a fleeting thought. So she sees a, a landscape and thinks, oh, that reminds me of that painting by Clarice Beckett, and then we move on. So it's it, we don't sort of dwell on the detail of the line of the landscape or the, you know, the brush technique or anything like that mm-hmm. uh, unless that is part of... Alex looking at the painting and thinking, oh, this has to be, this is the valuable painting because that's right. when you get a bit more artistic detail. But if it's a fleeting thought, it's it reminds me of a painting and then we move on. So it's that, that idea of just, yeah, it, it kind of catches you as you drive past. Okay. So the other thing I could recognise even before I read your bio and even before I, um, you know, realised that you were a vet, et cetera, was that you really know dogs. Um, <laughs> 
and regular listeners to the program will know about my own dog, Procrastipup. So I was reading this thing just going, this lady really likes dogs. Um, but Hogarth, Alex's companion, is a, is a big part of her life and the story and comes off the page as a character all on his own. Like he's got his own personality and he's doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. Was he always an important part of your idea for Alex and this series or has he developed into a bigger part, a bigger character along the way? He has 100% developed into a bigger character. So if if you start with The Shifting Landscape, if you haven't read the other books and you don't have to necessarily read them in sequence, they can kind of stand alone. Um, Hogarth has a much bigger role in this book than he did in the first two. Okay. Um, and that has partly been in response to people saying, oh, we want more about the dog. But also I think it he's, he's proven to be a very good way to, because Alex is a single person, to give her a foil when she's alone um, and to display her emotions a little bit more. But it was always very important. Um, I I thought long and hard about which breed of dog she would have. And as you said, he's a big dog. He's an Irish wolfhound. And he is, in a way, he's a reflection of who she is as a person. She would be a very different person if she had a small white fluffy dog or if she had a, you know, cheerful golden retriever bouncing along beside her or a, a big old Doberman or Rottweiler next to her, you would think about Alex in a very different way to having this very big but also very sort of staid and contained dog. You know, mm-hmm. he's a very solid presence in the books. And certainly if she had a cat, well, that would be an entirely different character altogether. Mm. Well, it's interesting because I read on your website that you're researching the history of human relationships with animals as they appear mm. in art. Do you think that this shapes your depiction of Hogarth as well? I think it does, yes. I, I, I think he's... He appears, as as I said, as a foil for Alex and her interactions with him and her reading of him when he interacts with other people I think is a very important part of, of that dynamic and mm. has become an increasing part of the story. As I said, this has been his biggest role by far. But the other... <laughs> Really crazy thing was that in you know there's a couple of like dog park scenes in the early books and I still teach dog training classes and I've had some of my students there um, and they identify they think that they come and say that border collie in the dog park that was my dog wasn't it <laughs> and I can feel my their dogs. <laughs> yes yes and I can feel my eyes getting a bit wide and then I just say yes that was absolutely your dog in the dog of park that was your dog. of course it was yes. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, So did you always envisage writing that this, uh, when you started out, that this would be a series of mysteries or were you just writing a book to start with? No, it was just a book. As I said, because Alex came as as a secondary, as a foil for Molly Dean, so it was really just about Molly Dean's story to start off with. But then Alex kind of, you know, moved into my brain a little bit with that story. And because the art world itself, it's just got so many seedy, dirty, grotty, dark little corners <laughs> in it that there just seemed to be all these things that she could do. And it would, she'd just like be in my head saying, hey, you know, that, that art heist or those fake Brett Whiteleys or something like that we can talk about that so yeah she just she just kind of moved in and started telling me all these you know grubby little art crime stories basically and what do you think was the key to her being a character that could sustain a series because there is a difference you know like she okay she was a foil in book one (laughs) but how did you know she was a strong enough character that she could you know have her own like she could go out on her own and and contain a series because um, you have to be a relatively interesting character and and have a development you know arc of your own to be able to actually manage um, you know a series as it unfolds Mm. yeah I think with Alex her her independence I think seems to have a lot of appeal and because she's because she's really um, how can I put it 
she's she's very astute. I don't want to call her a grifter, but she's kind of you know she's she's kind of there making deals in back lanes, and she's got this sort of auction room tactic where she's you know got subtle little winks and nods. So she's got a really interesting story in that regard. And she also does have her best friend who's um, an art conservator, John Porter. And so he's her go-to guy when she's got paintings that need to be restored or cleaned up for her to, you know, flip for a quick buck. But he's also been a friend for life. And there's this kind of little, you know, potential romantic interest Mm. there. You know, they've known each other for a long time and perhaps they've had a romantic past, but maybe not. But there's a little bit of, you know, will they, he's got a very messy relationship of his own that he's dealing with, but there's these kind of little odd glances and things that you just think, oh, are they going to, will they? So I think that has an element of it too. But I think because it's Alex's, almost Alex's struggle to to achieve, so, and to, to be an independent, woman and you know and a success in her own right I think that's what really drives her as a character yeah so I was going to ask you about that relationship for because for me that relationship between she and John is a is a key subplot and is part of sustaining it as a series because you've got to keep up that you know the tension between them and yeah. the will they won't they you know it's that whole moonlighting thing it all just fell mm. apart once they got together that's so, it don't do it um, <laughs> but is it like is that something that is actually difficult to maintain as a writer to keep that tension going I, look, I think it is because it, you know everyone wants them to get together, and I like you said, it's the it's the don't do it thing. I feel like it would kill it would kill mm. everything, and I think you know in real life, you know people who have have you know moved from the friend zone to the actual zone, you know it's 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 a big step because you know that it might destroy that really nice friendship that you've had if you you know if things go sour in a romantic relationship and i think that's where alex and john are they know they've got this great friendship and they kind of think should we go to the next you know should we take it to this romantic level but if they ruin that where does that lead everything mm. and it's it's kind of in and just in terms of writing it just having those little bits and pieces where it's still you can still see that that tension's there without pushing it too far um, and it is, it's a very fine line. But you have, I, I think, the masterful stroke that you've done there is you've given him, because he's married, right? Mm. So, yeah. and it's a complicated and difficult, you know, dynamic in that in that marriage. But it, it gives him a very, very solid reason and Alex a very, very solid reason not to. Because I think that's what you need to have to maintain the tension is there's got to be a barrier, doesn't there? Because if there's, Absolutely. and the barrier has to be a, a solid barrier, not just a, the writer is putting this here because, it suits the writer that's right that's right and it certainly that that does make it because you know Alex has kind of got in her mind that she can't do anything while he's still attached and obviously mm. he's he's in that same vein and, and his wife is difficult and fragile and you know all sorts of things like that so there's multiple reasons why you just wouldn't you know push things and push his wife to you know react in a particular way although she is very much a you know a very shadowy sideline character you know she's mm. just mentioned in the background mm. but yes having that barrier allows me as a writer to sort of have those little moments with them where it's just a touch or a look or a song on the radio and then everyone kind of catches their breath and there's a little bit of side eye going on as everyone looks at each other to decide whether that's significant or not and then goes right nothing to see here moving straight forward (laughs) moving right along that's it that's it (laughs) and so are you working on a new novel at the moment is there a fourth Alex Clayton in the works Yes, there is a fourth Alex Clayton in the works, and there is also actually a true crime in the works, surprisingly enough. Yeah. A true crime? Yes. When yes. can we expect to see a true crime? 
I think the true crime, because we've all sort of been messed around with publishing schedules because of lockdowns, oh, yeah. it's, well, it's actually been brought forward. So oh. um, it's potentially going to be in time for Christmas this year. Interesting. Mm. All right. And what kinds of things um, do you do to promote your novels? Like are you active on social media? Are you someone who before coronavirus and possibly after coronavirus does a lot of speaking? Like what kinds of things are you doing to promote your books? Yeah, so definitely speaking when speaking is possible. And um, while we've all been in lockdown, things have been moved. I've done several Zoom events for libraries. Um, we've done some, we did an, a, an online launch, which is still on YouTube with a local bookshop who were, were valiantly, you know, still delivering locally. So we, we put together a YouTube video and did a launch that way. Uh, I did a virtual tour for this book too because we were all in lockdown. So some wonderful booksellers sent me pictures of their bookshops and either with or without my book already in it. And if it wasn't in it, I photoshopped it in. And so we, we yeah, and so we made a virtual tour of uh, you know about a dozen bookshops around Australia, uh, which was great because it meant that we were promoting them as well and the fact that they were still delivering to their community, which was really lovely. So. The virtual tour. And, yes, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. And Hogarth has a Facebook page, I have to say. Hogarth the, does. Hogarth the dog, <laughs> yes, at the insistence of the publishers. That's and when we, had, when we yeah, when we had this meeting, I said, but what's the dog going to do on Facebook because the dog doesn't actually talk? And they're like, no, the dog needs a Facebook page. And I have to say the dog's page gets more hits. You know, if you if you put the same post on your author page and you do it on the dog page, there'll be, you know, 80 likes on the dog page within half an hour and, you know, half a dozen or so on the author page. And you know, the author page slowly builds up, but for some reason the dog page just... And, that doesn't yeah. surprise me in the slightest. And I know this because as soon as if I put like photos of me and my books and all of those sorts of mm-hmm. things on Instagram, uh, you know, yeah, whatever, as soon as I put up a photo of the dog, mm-hmm. it goes nuts. So people clearly like animals better than they like people. That's mm-hmm. all I'm saying. That's it. That's it. Yep. <laughs> all right. So um, we're going to finish up today. Thank you so much for your time. So people Absolutely. can find you as a on your website, which is – what is your website address? It's katherinekovacic.com. Okay. And Kovacic is – C oh sorry K O V A C I C and it's Catherine yes. with a K. Yes. Um, all right, so let's finish up today with your top three tips for writers. Mm-hmm. Number one, I think, is if there is a problem, it usually means it started probably a few pages back or a chapter back. So I've found if I hit a snag, I go backwards rather than trying to work out the problem on the spot and mm-hmm. work out where things started to unravel. So that's my sneaky top tip. Um, the obvious one is always keep writing even when it's feeling really sluggish and quicksandy and desperately hard because there is a solid ground up ahead and then you can always throw a bridge back over the quicksand. Mm. That's number two. And um, and I think trust your gut too and be prepared to but be prepared to let your characters take you on those sneaky side roads because I've had times when I've thought, yep, this is the way the story is going to unfold and then Alex will do something and I will literally be typing it out thinking, why is this happening? Why is she doing this? No, don't. And then it turns out really interesting. So if your characters want to take you on a sneaky side road, let them run with it for a while and then you can rein them in later if you need to. <laughs> Give them a smack. <laughs> that's it. That's it. <laughs> 
All right, that's perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Catherine, and best of luck with the book. I will look forward. I'm actually going to go back and read The Portrait of Molly Dean because I'm quite fascinated by that whole the sound of that story. I can see, just based on the premise, why four publishers were interested in that because I just think that mystery at the heart of that is just fantastic, particularly when it's got that truth in it. So that's going to be on my to-be-read pile next. And um, good luck with the rest. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun talking to you, Alison. <laughs> Thank you. It's all about the dogs, really, right? Oh, yeah. Always. Always. (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murdercourse. There you go. Great interview with Catherine Kovacic. All right, Al. So what are you doing in the coming week till we chat again? Well, uh, regular listeners will remember that I have been working very hard behind the scenes on an on an update of my website, and that mm. is that is uh, we're we're getting to the point now where it's uh, it's all down to me now to actually you know update the copy and do some bits and pieces. Mm. So that that's I'm hoping that I might be able to unveil that relatively soon, which will be good. I've got that going on. I've been creating resources for um, for the Firestar, you know, ahead of. Um, you know, teachers' notes and all sorts of different things going on. Um, I'm working on um, another manuscript, which is going incredibly slowly right now. I've got the preparation for my uh, Your Kids Next Read, you know, live stream. I've still got to figure out how to make the the technology work. Um, Mm. You know, I just – bits and pieces. It's interesting. I I shared a quote the other day from J.K. Rowling where she was talking about the importance of protecting the writing time, and Mm. it's one of those situations where um, it does become more and more difficult the more uh, it's, it's an interesting thing because when you're writing your first novel and you've got a job and you've got your kids and you've got all that stuff you think how can it possibly get any harder than this um, but the reality of it is that it actually does get harder than, as your books you know have more books out etc mm. because you have uh, the whole here I life of being a writer to actually incorporate yes. into all of that as well. Um, so yes, the kids are older and, and that aspect of my life is easier. Um, but you know, it, I, I, you know, I often have people say, Oh, well, you know, at least you don't have a four month old and a four year old. It's like, well, mm. yes, but I did. I did. Yes, that's I think right. some, I think sometimes people, you know, they look at where you are now and they forget that it's taken you 10 years to get to that particular point in your life. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and as you kind of, as I think as kids get older, people think, oh, it's going to be so much easier as they get older. Mm-hmm. And it does become easier in some ways, but it also becomes more difficult because you're not just managing, you know, 
when they're younger, they are an addendum to your life. As they Mm. get older, they have their own as well as the one that they have with you. And so you are managing not just, you know, all of that. You're not managing just the family life and your life. You are managing the family life, your life and, you know, individual um, existences as well, which all becomes uh, quite complicated. Mm. Um, So, yeah, anyway, so that's, uh, that's what I'm doing, all of those things. What about you? You know, if before I go on to what about me, one of the things that um, I want to tell everyone that Alison is so amazing at is fitting all of these things in. And I really yeah. do think she has one key thing. I mean, she does many things that are great to do that. But one thing that I've observed over the years that she does that many people don't do. And so I'm sharing this tip just like the fingerless gloves. Um, <laughs> and that is you can be talking to Alison about, oh, we should do whatever or, you know, um, you just come up with something and that that Alison thinks, okay, I need to do that. She doesn't actually just write it down and put it in a one-day file. She is literally doing it as you're speaking. So if it's, oh, I need to ask Caroline this thing, she types the email straight away. It is, it is so efficient and so quick and it means that, it doesn't get left on the table for the next day or the next day or the next day or the next week. She gets it done straight away. And I think that single action, that single strategy has can have such a profound effect to one's productivity and ability to fit things in and get things done. So that's my observation of Alison and I hope that Thank it's you. useful. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I think uh, you should give it a name. That, that I think, well, the only reason I do it is so I don't forget things. So it's one of those things where when you get to know yourself very well and you realise that if you procrastinate and put things off, you will never do them, um, mm. you begin to understand the importance of just getting stuff done. Um, but I have to say that in con... Uh, you know, at the same time as that, I also have this very, and we've talked about this before as well, I have a very long and involved to-do list, which is mm. also a to-do book, um, mm. which I also use to manage because the the getting things done straight away is great, like sending those emails and doing whatever, but what you also have to keep an eye on is all of those other things that are ongoing projects because otherwise you spend your whole mm. day getting things done right now right, and the yes. things that that need to also get done um, uh, get get sidelined. So, it's it's a it's a combination of of acting on things that can be acted on straight away without you know too much drama, and mm. also managing that to do book that I have, which I'm going to publish one day. It's going to be fascinating. Mm. Um, the to do book, uh, which is is you know the short term and the long term, and balancing those things all the time is is one of the great dances of particularly uh, freelance writing. And I think that that's mm. where my um, probably I've honed my skills with that. Hmm. Awesome. Okay. We look forward to reading that to-do book one day. <laughs> <laughs> All, All the right. things I once did, it'll be called. <laughs> where, where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontate.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at uh, Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And you'll find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.